0: Good morning. Uh, This morning's scripture reading comes from John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him, and this eternal life that they know you, the only true God, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have not given them your word, or I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Before the foundation of the world, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Thank you. I'm the only one awake this morning. <laughs> um, I know many of you know me. I know some of you do not know me, but I'm, my name is Jock Keller, and I'm the Young Adults Pastor at All Saints. And thank you, Aaron, for reading that long chapter to us. It's really one of the most majestic, majestic chapters in the Bible. It's called Christ's High Priestly Prayer. And it's a prayer that he prays right before he goes to the crucifixion. And it's a long passage, I know. So we're not going to try and cover all of it. We're really just going to focus on the last six verses, verses 20 through 26 with me. So will you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, the meditation of all of our hearts, might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, as I was preparing this sermon, I was sitting at a coffee shop, Stout House down off 290. And a, a guy came in, a tall, dick, it was five, tall dude. He had a big black shirt on with a big white peace sign on it. He sat down and he was visibly frustrated and animated. He kept going on and on and on to um, this, uh, you know, uh, this friend of his who was sitting across the table. And I had my headphones on. So, but he was so loud and so animated that even with my headphones on, with music playing, I could still hear everything that he was saying. And his shirt, the sign of peace, was a symbol for uh, this group that he belongs to that was um, advocating for peace on our streets, filming police officers as they go about their work to prevent police brutality on our streets. And as he was talking about this, I realized his frustration was that this group that was committed to peace, to unity in the community, his frustration was that their group was breaking apart <laughs> because of the internal personality conflicts within their, in- their own group. In fact, he shouted really loudly one time, we're so united in this one cause, but it's like we just can't get together. And I was like, that's it, Right? Because you felt that, haven't you? That feeling like we just can't get together. Does that resonate with you? Perhaps in some of your friendships in your family, I'm united to this person by blood, but it's like we just can't get together. in your marriages, your workplaces, in your churches in this church, in your neighborhoods. and we might even be together. But we might not be, as Jesus says here in John 17, we might not be one. So this morning we're going to look at these last six verses here on unity and look for an answer to our just inherent disunity. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at our, first our glory, then His glory, and finally our unity. Now, in saying all that, you might be thinking, glory? Christ is talking about union and unity. Why are we talking about glory? But glory, the word glory is not incidental to our passage here. If you're reading along as Aaron was reading, if you look through chapter 17, the word glory keeps popping up everywhere. You see it right in verse 1, right? Jesus prays, Father, glorify me that I might glorify you. Verse 4, verse 5, verse 10, verse 22, verse 24. In our section here, verses 20 through 26, verse 22 says where Christ connects glory to our unity. After praying that the church would be one, he then says, the glory that you have given to me, Father, I have given to them so that they might be one. So glory and how we handle and understand glory is important to understanding our unity. So we're going to need know what glory is, right? So that brings us, naturally, to one of the most glorious moments Of the moment. Retrievers beating Cavaliers. You know what I'm talking about, right? March Madness, one shining moment, you know? A 16 seed for the first time in history, defeating a number one seed. And my favorite thing about it is that they're the Retrievers, like the most lovable, kind, like not intimidating dog, right? But they're taking down the Cavaliers. I don't know if you're a March Madness fan, you might not be. I grew up in Kansas, I'm a diehard Kansas basketball fan. So, obviously, March Madness means a lot to me, except for the painful disappointment of always crashing out early. But, here's the thing. If you've watched March Madness, last 10, 20 years. At the end of every single tournament, there's the 1980s power ballad called One Shining Moment. You know what I'm talking about? That plays with a video montage of all the greatest moments from the tournament. And they're just singing one shining moment. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah? Okay. And the song itself is really a song about glory. It's about one shining moment. And I think it will really help us understand the kind of twofold understanding of what glory is in the Bible. In the Old Testament, glory is generally represented by this Hebrew word that's kavod. Kavod um, is usually the word used for glory, and it means heavy. It means weighty. Now, we use the word, okay, so it's like this. Whatever is most weighty in your life, that is what your glory is. In English, we use the word matter, right? What matters to you? When we say that, we don't mean, what in your life has the most physical mass? That's not what we mean. We say, what matters the most to you? What does Your life, orbit around. For many of us, sports are glorious because they matter. Because they're meaningful. You know, success as an athlete is important generally in our culture. And for many of us, if we grew up playing sports in high school, the significance and meaning and value that we can find, the fame and recognition that we can achieve playing sports is important. It has meaning. That's why if you're listening to the, mo- the song One Shining Moment, right, the video montage, you'll hear the singer belt out this one shining moment, frozen in time, right? And the announcers will say things like, we'll be talking about this for years to come. Because it matters when a 16 seed beats a one seed. And we will be talking about it for a long time. It's weighty. The Hebrew word kavod is translated when it goes to Greek in the New Testament is the word doxa. Now doxa adds another idea matter. It's the idea of brilliance or brightness, right? Something that it's worth is radiating out, right? So whenever God shows up in the Old Testament or the New Testament, remember think of Jesus transfiguration, he's glorious because he's shining so bright, it's like a light. Like it's brighter Than the bleached white. Whenever you see God showing up in the Old Testament, right? It's bright. It's radiant. It's glowing. If you think about it like this when something really wonderful happens in your life that has immense significance, right? You become engaged, you go on a wonderful first date, you're pregnant, you get a promotion. Your job. You have a wonderful night on the town with your friends. What do people say when they meet you the next day? She's positively beaming, right? When something great happens in your life, we can't help but smile. We can't help but radiate because of the joy connected to the meaning, the weight of what happened radiates out of us. Kavod and doxa something that matters and has such weight that it becomes a shining, brilliant, radiant something, right? And we love to talk about those moments. We love to praise them. They become one shining moment. And that's exactly where glory and our passage connect this morning, with unity. Here's why. Because our glory, the things that radiate us, that have weight and meaning in our life, for us it's a one-way street, Do you know what I mean by that? Have you ever been one-upped? You tell a really amazing story. Like it's a fascinating story. Everyone's just like the circle. Everyone's like, that is an amazing thing that happened to you. And then the person sitting right to your left says, oh, that reminds me of this story. And they tell an even better story that everyone else loves even more. And everyone laughs even more to your own story. Have you ever had that experience? How did it feel when your glory was stolen? How does it feel when someone's star grows brighter than your own and yours dims? What matters to you? Like what do you glory in? Fame? Success? Attention? Wealth? Your body? Someone else's body? Pleasure? This is the thing your life orbits around. Now look at that thing and ask what how do you act in relation to the people around you who can make you shine, who also orbit around that thing and can shine onto you. How do you relate to the person that takes away that light from you? Our glory is a one way street. We say, I matter. And what matters to me should matter to everyone else around me. Even if it means you go dim so I can get bright. That's a one-way street glory. One-way glory. It says, you point your light at me, and I'll also point my light at me, and we'll all just see how bright I can get, even if it means everyone else goes dark. Indeed, just think how often our prayers to God are really just prayers where we are asking God's help to get our own glory. To get that one thing that we think, if we get it, our life will glow. We'll shine to everyone around us. We'll shine to ourselves. I think we know instinctively when glory is like that. And I think what's easy for us to then ask, if that's what our glory looks like, then what does His glory look like? What is God's glory like? Does God also have some sort of needy desire for praise and attention? Perhaps you've heard that verse from Isaiah 42. It's pretty famous, but it goes like this. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. You heard that before? Or maybe you know the Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter Catechism number one, Presbyterians here. It goes like this. What is the chief end of man? What is the primary purpose of all human beings? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Is that what God wants, we might ask? When we interpret His glory as really our glory. Is God in heaven sort of petulantly shouting, Hey, make me look good, you people on earth. Shine on me. We wonder about that. Do we not? But actually, I think this passage, John chapter 17, tells us that the nature of God's glory is not a one-way street glory. It's always a two-way street glory. Look at verse 1 of chapter 17 here. What is Christ's prayer to God the Father? He prays, glorify me. But why? So that I can glorify you. (laughs) The purpose of Christ's glorification is that he might glorify the Father. In other words, what matters most to Jesus? What is the glory for Jesus Christ? It's the Father. In verse 4, He glorifies the Father by accomplishing all that the Father has asked Him to do. Verse 25, what is Christ's glory? Making the Father known. Christ's glory is to take everything that the Father has given to Him and give it to us. To turn our attention to God the Father. And then what then do you think is the glory of God the Father? What matters most to Him? It is his beloved son. In fact, as Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us, that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. You know what that means? Christ is the brightness of the thing that matters most to God the Father. In our passage here, in verse 24, Jesus' prayer says, before the foundations of the world were laid. That means back And eternity past, God the Father was loving, perfectly loving, glorifying His Son. In fact, that passage from Isaiah 42 that we were just talking about, right? The one that says God will not give His glory to any other. You know what that passage in Isaiah 42 is actually talking about? It's not talking about God's not willing to share the limelight with anybody else. The chapter is actually about God's chosen servant. Who is going to bring forth justice into the world and put all things to right. It's talking about Jesus. That's who God the Father gives His glory to and no other. To Jesus. Because He delights from all eternity past in His Son. That's who God is. A Father perfectly loving a Son and a Son perfectly loving a Father. Both through the Holy Spirit. So, this is what Jesus does. He points everyone to God the Father and He says, look at Him. Isn't He great? Isn't He beautiful? Isn't He loving? And what does God the Father say? Look at my son, Jesus. Man, I love Him. Isn't He wonderful? All throughout John, as you've been going through, John, I hope you've been able to see that whenever John talks about what's the hour of Christ's glory, whenever John talks about the hour of Christ's glory, It's always talking about Jesus' crucifixion. Because that act on the cross, the self-giving love of Jesus Christ is the greatest expression of God the Father's outgoing, self-giving, two-way street love and glory. The cross is not some sort of shining moment of self-aggrandizing success, right? It's not. It's a bitter, suffering humiliation on behalf of you and me to win us back from the darkness of this world and the darkness of our own souls that want to turn all the light onto ourselves. And that's Jesus' prayer here in verse 24. What does he pray to God the Father? That you would bring them back to be with me. Jesus Christ goes willingly to the cross. Not because of a slavish duty to a father's will, but because that's the kind of father God is. And Jesus loves to make that love known. He loves for us to know, as it says in verse 23 here, that God the Father has loved Jesus since the beginning of time, and he's also loved us with the exact same kind of love. When that love sinks down into your heart, it will change you. It will. Because we all want to be loved this way. But we all know we don't deserve to be loved at the cost of Jesus' crucifixion. But being united to Jesus by faith and by baptism, having His love and the love of God the Father poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that love will turn us turn us around to where we want to make Jesus matter and make him radiant in our own lives, in the lives of all that we come into contact with. Because in doing that, we will not grow dim. Because we are being united to who? The light of the world who said into the darkness, let there be light. And he had the power and the sustaining life to make it happen. So as we're united to Christ, as verse 23 says, God the Father is united to Christ, Christ is united to us, we are then united to each other. So that all that Christ has, we have, together and individually. We have His righteous life, His pure life. We also have His love for and His love of the Father, and His love from the Father. So that all that is Christ is also ours. You know, one of the images of the Holy Spirit um, is oil. You know, like in, um, in certain Christian traditions, they take oil and for new converts or in baptisms, they christen them. They put the oil onto their foreheads. As an illustration that the Holy Spirit now has come onto this person as a member of Christ's church and the Holy Spirit indwells them. You know what Psalm 123 says? Behold, how good and pleasant It is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down onto the beard, on the beard of Aaron, the high priest. The high priest. This is Christ Jesus' high priestly prayer. You see, just as the oil ran down from Aaron's head to the rest of his body, so as Christ prays his high priestly prayer and what happens on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is the Holy Spirit, God himself, runs down from Christ, our high priest, from Christ, our head, onto the rest of his body, onto us, the church. And thus we become united to Christ and his work on our behalf. And that is our unity. So, to conclude, what some really practical thoughts? about how to live in unity that we have already been given through Christ. Focus and presence. Just as Christ's glory was to do the will of God the Father, so unity within the church comes through a mutual glory to do Christ's will, to become like Him. Focus upon the self-giving love that Jesus both exhibited at the cross but also that led him to go to the cross. And as you go through the rest of the New Testament, right, that's actually just what you find. The scriptures are constantly, Paul, John, are constantly employing the church to give of themselves in love and self-sacrifice. Or as I am saying, to constantly live in a two-way street glory. You know this passage from Philippians chapter 2? One of the most beautiful passages in scripture, Paul writes this. Looking not only to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You notice the flow of Paul's argument here? It's very similar to what we just read about in John, isn't it? You have union with Christ. You're one with Christ. You're comforted in the love from God. And now you're sharing in the Holy Spirit. Then become through love one in mind and one in spirit. How? Two-way street glory. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In other words, make other people's matters your matter. Paul then follows with that most beautiful section of Scripture, a prayer from Philippians chapter 2 about Christ's self-giving, humiliating love that he takes to the cross, in which at the end of, the Father celebrates Jesus because of it. Glorifies him, elevates him above all. Everyone will bow down and recognize not exactly his power, though, yes, that, but his power expressed through the cross. So, if we want the church to be united, we have to have a focus, right, upon Christ and upon others. Well, it's going to be messy. It just is, right? If you've ever seen an adolescent kid growing up, any growing up is messy. You know, like the kid who reaches out to get that glass of milk, but overnight his arm grew like two more inches, and so he doesn't know how to handle it, and he knocks the glass over and it spills everywhere. Growing pains, the pain of growing, the awkwardness. Do you ever, just go back, just for a moment, we're in a middle school, just go back and think about what middle school was like. Was it not awkward and painful growing up? It is, and it's no different as we grow into our own unity. So the constant encouragement throughout the New Testament is what? What? To be united and to forgive one another. Paul says it in Romans. Paul says it in Galatians. He says it in Ephesians. He says it in Colossians. John says it in 1 John. 1 Peter says it. Forgive one another as God has forgiven you in Christ. Or in Galatians, Paul writes, to put to death the fruits of the flesh. You know what things he talks about? Rivalries. Division. Dissension. (laughs) All those things... Paul puts on the exact same list as sorcery, <laughs> as idolatry, as sexual immorality. We think about those things as different categories. And Paul says they're all one of the same kind of fruit of the flesh, of one way glory. And instead he, he urges us to tend the fruit of the Spirit. What is it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, What is the fragrance? What is the sweetness of that kind of fruit? It's unity, isn't it? So focus upon Christ and upon others. But also just lastly, presence. I think one of the dangers often in talking about unity and oneness, I know it's hot in here. I'm hot. I'm also wearing a tie, so I also feel doubly out of place. But I think that we easily slide when we talk about unity and oneness I think we slide into sort of this abstract ecumenical spiritual identity, you know, like yes, the church needs to be united. Let's all bring everybody together, all the denominations and everything. And that's good. And that's right. But sometimes we focus on that and miss out on the immediate working out of this unity in our lives. I have a book here by Tish Warren, uh, who used to live in Austin. Um The book's called Liturgy of the Ordinary, and in chapters, I don't know, chapter 6, she she uses this illustration from C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, and I just want to read it to you. In C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, a senior demon screw tape coaches a junior devil on how to infect a man's relationship with others. He says, keep his mind off the most basic of duties by directing him to the most advanced and spiritual ones. Aggravate that most useful of human characteristics, the horror and neglect of the boring and obvious. He continues, this is the demon talking. I've had patients of my own so well in hand that they could be turned at one moment's notice from impassioned prayer for a wife's or a son's soul to then beating and insulting the real wife and real son without a qualm. And then she connects it to our topic of unity. Like those under Screwtape's influence, I often neglect the obvious. Proclaiming a radical love, radical unity for the world, even as I neglect to care for those closest to me. I'm increasingly aware that I cannot seek God's peace and mission in the world, or unity in the church, without being right where I am, in my home, in my neighborhood, in my church, with the real people right around me. To grow in unity, we have to be present to the people most near to us. Those sitting right next to you, right in front of you, and right behind you. It's the unity that comes through Christ's self-giving love at work in us. It doesn't happen up here. It happens in the moment-to-moment moment daily grind of the painful trenches of our lives where we are asked every day coming home from work at the end of a long day with our kids coming to sunday and worshiping with god's people that i must love and forgive and live in union with those most close to me And i think in a moment we get to share together one of the most beautiful expressions of our unity as we feed upon Christ and his blood together in the feast that Christ has given to us. You pray with me. Father, we know how easy it is to talk about, to dream about, to want unity in your church, unity among our relationships, and how difficult that hard work often is. But we pray that you would send your spirit down upon us that we might understand that the love that you've given to us and that we accept and that we celebrate that we are one with you because of Jesus Christ, that he has paid for our sin upon the cross and made us whole and right with you, God, our Father. It's the same love and same truth for the person sitting on our left and on our right who is in your son, Jesus Christ. May we understand that truly and live out of that. I pray that in the name of Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Amen.